You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back to the show, my Freedom Pack family. Well, we have certainly got a big episode for you here today. Today on the show, we are joined by none other than General Stanley McChrystal. General McChrystal is a retired four-star general former top commander of the U.S. and International Security Assistance Forces. Stan commanded a number of elite organizations, including overseeing the capture of Saddam Hussein in 2003, as well as taking charge of the 2009 NATO-U.S. mission into Afghanistan. On top of being one of the most decorated military generals in American history, Stan is a senior fellow at Yale and teaches a graduate seminar about leadership. On top of this, Stan can also boast being a two-time best-selling author of Team of Teams, as well as the book that we discussed in today's episode, Leaders, Myth and Reality. Well, in... Today's episode, I mean, we just covered so, so much ground. We discussed things like, just to name a few, how to gain respect, not just for yourself, but also how to gain respect from others. We discuss how General McChrystal builds discipline, how he makes better decisions, leadership, how to be a better leader. Do you have to be in a leadership position to be a leader how can you be a leader during times of a global crisis like the pandemic which we're currently in and also other goodies like how to be better at having difficult conversations this was such a fantastic episode and i do not want to drag it out any further so without any further ado i hope you enjoy this conversation with the hugely thoughtful General Stanley McChrystal. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Amazing. So when I first started really digging into your story, I read Team of Teams a few years ago. I loved it. But I really started digging into your story. And the most surprising part for me was that when we go way back when and we go back to your time at West Point, there appeared to be some sort of chinks in the armor and you appeared to have, you know, quite a little bit of a troubled period. So I wonder what was that difficult part of your time like then? Yeah, that's a, that's a kind way of saying the chinks in the armor. Um, I think the big thing is I just didn't take that seriously. My father had been a soldier. My father's father had been a soldier. And I wanted to be a soldier. So my idea was, 
I will go to West Point because that's a good way to become a soldier. But West Point wouldn't matter much because the only thing that would matter is what I did as a soldier. Well, West Point had a very different view of that. West Point's view was, this is very important. This is your education. And, you know, I understood that, but I was young and I was immature and ill-disciplined. And uh, so I did. I got in a lot of trouble. I almost got thrown out. I would. So you went through all this trouble. What was the catalyst for change? It's funny you should say. I think there were three things. Uh, the first was I, I went after my first two years at West Point. I'd been beat up pretty bad. I'd gotten a lot of trouble. And so at a certain point, you know, maybe wisdom gets beaten in. The second point was I started dating the lady I'm now married to for 43 years, Annie. And so there was a stabilizing factor in my life. She would come up, not every weekend, but you know, occasionally. And so I had somebody I, I really cared about. And then I had a tactical officer take over my company. And he just exhibited confidence in me. He said, you're going to be a great soldier. And I, you know, I actually thought he was confused on who he was interviewing the first time I met him. And I said, are you sure you know who I am? And he goes, yeah, you're going to be a great soldier. And I said, all right. And, and I think those kinds of things, belief in me, something to look forward to, and just, you know, maturation uh, made the difference. So when this gentleman said you're going to be a great soldier, did you believe him at the time? Well, I certainly wanted to because I had separated being a cadet and being a soldier in my mind. And West Point often didn't do that. They, they said, be a good cadet, you'll be a good soldier. Well, interestingly enough, he said, no, nah, it's got nothing to do with it. You know, there are certain things about you that will make you a good soldier or not. And some of those matter as a cadet. But many of the things you do as a cadet don't matter. And he, he just had that, he had been a graduate about 12 years before and he had a very realistic view of it. And so for me, that proved very true in my career. The people in my class from West Point who turned out to be really good soldiers were not the people who were at the top of the class academically. They weren't the people who had the most shining cadet records, but they were people when you thought back of them as cadets, you said, yeah, that's a person I really had faith in. That's a person I trusted. So there was the ability to, to sort of predict, but it wasn't the metrics that, you know, the school might have celebrated. Mm, I find that so interesting. So if you were to say, give some advice to perhaps a young person, maybe 17, 18, and you were to sort of uh, offer some advice into perhaps, you know, if someone's feeling lost or they're looking to turn their life around or perhaps maybe they haven't found anyone that believes in them because the support network is huge. What would you sort of, what, what advice would you offer? Yeah, that's, that's really thoughtful. Um, I would say first is look ahead and decide who you'd like to be. And when I say who you'd like to be in my class at Yale, Sometimes we make them write their obituary and we say, what would you like it to say in your obituary about you? Not just your accomplishments, but what do people say about you? 
Uh, and if you back plan, you say, okay, I want to be someone who is trusted. I want to be someone who gave to others, or I want to be whatever it is you want to be. I'd, I'd say start with that because much of what you do before that will either give you the opportunity to get there or not. Um, then I would go back and say, my son is funny. Um, he looked at me, he was in college and he was doing only okay. And he goes, nobody knows what your college grades were. Nobody cares. And it's a fair point. Um, there are certain things that, that measure wise don't matter. And so, but people do care what kind of person you are. And so I, I try to, I would tell a young person, think about that. And some of it's very serious because there are some things, if you make mistakes as a young person, are hard to correct. If you make mistakes of character, if you treat people poorly, if you develop that kind of relationship or that kind of reputation, those are hard to change. And those are more important than your grades in physics. I love that. I love that so much. Um, one of the uh, reasons why I wanted to uh, go through that was because when I read Leaders, Myth and Reality, I thought, wow, I thought, you know, everybody has sort of, you know, an interesting story. And, and I love delving into that. So if we look at the leadership um, aspect of it, if I was to say, could you please complete the sentence of leadership was blank space and then leadership now is blank space? I would say that leadership was viewed through the lens of the individual. And so it was viewed through the idea that you or I as leaders are going to be the fulcrum of history. If we come along, we are the right person and, and everything is better or worse. Um, I think now people increasingly are understanding that there are a complex swirl of factors. The leader is part of that. The, the moment is part of that, the conditions. And then the people that you're interacting with who are the followers or partners are part of that. And it doesn't mean the leader doesn't matter, but it means that the leader is not necessarily the decisive thing. The leader may just be part of it. And usually it's a, a, uh, a combination of leaders. And so when we get in history and we get a distance from an event for military history, we look at the Battle of X and we'll say what general won the battle and what general lost it. And we simplify that, that one person had a better day than the other person and therefore won or lost. And of course, that's, that's remarkably uh, incorrect in most instances in life. Mm, it's like uh, what you talk about in the book, there's an attribution error there, which I love. So I suppose just how much um, do you attribute leadership to in terms of because uh, it seemed to me as if you put much more weight on the environment and uh, the sort of system rather than the actual individual. I, I do. I think the individual often shapes the environment. So I, I like to talk about Admiral Horatio Nelson and the fact that 
at the Battle of Trafalgar, he was wounded in the opening moments of the battle and then died during the battle. So he issued no orders during the battle. And so they say it's his greatest victory, but you could argue he did nothing in the battle. But I still argue that he was a decisive factor because the culture that he created in his captains and in his fleet was robust. It was resilient. It was adaptable. So he gave them a series of uh, attributes as an entity that allowed them to be very, very effective. And so in the moment of the battle, he didn't need to be alive. I love that. And I, I will definitely get into the sort of the context, uh, but just sort of going back, how has uh, leadership evolved over time? Yeah, I, I think it's evolved. Um, humans are social people, you know, from, you know, just by nature and they started to socialize. And so we started to develop this idea that leaders are, uh, important and that we want to be leaders. And if we go back through history, it was in many ages much more collective. There wasn't the focus on the single individual. There wasn't the idea that that this person guides the, the direction of everything. Societies mattered, groups mattered, tribes or smaller societies that the uh, uh, democracy of Athens, that sort of a thing. There was shared responsibility for leadership. Then we started to get in a period and and part of it was real and part of it was perception. And that was when we had emperors and kings, we started to put the spotlight on single individuals and defined ages, the age of this person, the, the age of that person, and say that that person, Louis the the Fourteenth, shaped an entire age, um, and of course that's that's got to be uh, an oversimplification. But we started uh, through the great man and great woman uh, mode of recording history. We we started identifying those people and focusing our uh, interpretation of history and also what's important as individuals through that. And we did ourselves a bit of a disservice. We let everybody else off the hook for responsibility. We said only that person, if they won or lost, mattered. The rest of you are just there and don't, you know, aren't responsible. And that's, of course, incorrect. Second, we set up this idea that if you are a leader, that's the way you should conduct yourself. You should conduct yourself as though you have, you know, uh, special attributes. You are destined, you were born with the right and the responsibility to lead. And the problem is that that's also unrealistic. And we give expectations of those people. And then we are often disappointed because they're not 10 feet tall, because they're not brilliant, because they don't get everything right. And I, I think that it's important that we, we get more realistic about it, not as a way of uh, asking people to try not to be good leaders, but don't set up an impossible hurdle. It's like elections. You, you know, every once in a while uh, in a country, the United States, we will literally look to find the next great person who will ride on horseback and save the republic. 
what we should be doing is looking for a good person who will surround themselves with good people and therefore we can we can get a realistic uh outcome i find that so interesting and i love the attribution example which you gave to me and i remember in my first corporate job which i had i had this uh newly promoted uh manager that was my sort of team leader and he was very good at his actual job but then he got into the actual and because he was so good at it they gave him a managerial position a leadership position but his actual role and the role of leading other people they're two separate things and I noticed there and then that there was another guy on my team that was just crushing it. And he sort of become the real leader, even though he didn't have the role. So I wonder, you know, even if someone doesn't have the title of a manager or a boss, can they still be a leader? I, I think not only can they, but in many cases they are. You would go in my military experience, you would also have a, often have a, an organization of very uh, competent professional people. But there would be one or two who were the informal leaders of the organization. And so as a young officer, you'll give instructions to your platoon, about 40 people. And you've got a platoon sergeant who's the most senior, but you have one or two sergeants in there that if they stand up after you do it and go, okay, great, let's do it, then you're good. If they don't, you don't have the same kind of support from everyone else. So I think they are, you know, influencers, they're called sometimes now. Other times they are very quiet leaders who build the strength of an organization through how they interact with people. Um, and I think identifying those people in an organization, and you don't have to put them, lift them up and put them in formal positions, but identifying them and valuing what they do is very, very effective in, in making an organization healthier. Mm, yeah, I find that, find that so, so interesting. And one of the things which I really took from the book was that we know that um, the science of leadership is essentially incomplete. There's, there's a lot which we don't know. It's highly contextual, which you make a great case of. But I wonder how much do we know about earning the respect of others. Is there a science to earning the respect of others? That's a, that's a question I'm unable to answer definitively. What I would say is there are um, theories on it. There are uh, certainly experiences that many leaders have been through where you succeeded or failed, uh, usually somewhere in the middle, but uh, at winning the respect. And quite often, it's very different. I mean, one time you'll do this and you'll win the respect of everyone because the context of the moment, their mindset. And the next minute, you'll, you'll try that same thing and it will fall completely on its face. So I think the best you can do is, for the long term, sort of generally, is think what you want in a leader. You want somebody who is honest, that you trust. You want somebody who's competent, that can deliver. You want somebody who respects you and gives you a, uh, a role that, that makes you feel good about it. And that's, you could argue that those are uh, core and they're always true. 
I would argue they're usually true. And so you, you kind of can't go wrong if you start with that. But then you've got to be very empathetic. And what I mean by that is not sympathetic. I mean empathetic. You've got to be able to, in an organization, turn the lens around and see things through other people's eyes. How will they feel in that moment? What do they need? What do they want? And it's hard because you're not them. You don't have their life experience. You don't have their position. But you can try to say, okay, what's really happening here? And in those moments, you can say, okay, what do I need or want from the leader now? Um, and that's about the best you can do. That's why people who have uh, a natural sense of empathy, but also people who are observant, people who listen, uh, they tend to do better because they tend to have a sense of, okay, what's happening here? You know, I, when I commanded military units, it was very interesting. The way you treated the same group of people on Monday morning and Friday afternoon is very different. Um, how you treat them in a moment of crisis and how you treat them sometimes else is very different. How you interact with them is very different. You don't want to be someone who's not, doesn't have a baseline consistency that they can rely on, but you do want to be able to wax and wane with the sea as it, it goes up and down in their modes. Could you give an example of someone throughout your life that has somehow gained great influence over you where you've just had a, uh, an enormous amount of respect and could you also explain how they got that? Yeah. Um, I, I'll start with uh, a guy who was a battalion commander of mine. And we, on the surface, were very different. I was a captain, about eight years service at the time, and uh, some experience, but not huge. And he was a battalion commander with 17, 18 years. And I was very much of the belief that leaders have got to be very physically fit and very lead from the front and those kinds of things. And, you know, I didn't smoke. Uh, and he smoked like a chimney and he was a little pudgy. And he kind of laughed at those, you know, stand up and be the symbolic leader in the front. And, and so I kind of thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to do with this guy because he's sort of sarcastic in his approach. But what I learned was here he was incredibly competent. He understood our business better than anyone in the organization. And then he thought it was his job to teach us our business in detail, which he did. And it was, it was a long process and he had to, he sort of, took things apart and he said, you think military is standing tall, straight teeth, you know, charismatic. He goes, I got it. The unit's got to work. You've got to understand how the machine operates. You've got to get inside the machine. You've got to be able to fix it because that's really what determines our success. And so it was a very different approach than I had expected. And I grew just to absolutely worship the man because he really did care about us. He really wanted to make the organization work. He really did want to make us learn. And he could poke fun at us when he saw us being sort of a two-dimensional paper, paper doll kind of soldier. He would literally 
get you back, you know, down to reality. I remember I got a, a letter one time from my division commander, a letter of commendation that said what a good company commander I was. And usually that's the kind of thing you take home and you show your wife and you sort of feel very proud of. He took a magic marker and wrote on it and he goes, I think it's ridiculous. This is absurd. And he wrote it on my letter, you know, and I'm thinking, wow. But he was just, he thought I was a good officer, but he was reminding me, don't take this seriously, you know? Um, so he was a person that I just really grew to deeply admire, still do. And when I screwed up, you know, when I was very confident and feeling good about myself, he would poke holes in it. But when I was feeling very insecure and I had screwed something up, he didn't kick you and you were down then. Then he was the opposite. Then he was going, hey, it doesn't matter. We all do that. Um, and I thought that was brilliant. Mm, I find that so interesting. And it seems like like one thing which you've mentioned, which even with that story, which does seem true, is a level of empathy. So I wonder why is empathy such a, uh, I suppose just why is it so powerful? Because we all need something from our leaders. If you think about it, um, in a crisis, we need confidence. Um, in a low point, we may need hope. Uh, in a time of hubris, we, need, we may need reality. And a leader has got to be able to understand the people they work with well enough to sense that moment, to sense that need, to give them what people need in the moment, maybe not what they want, but what they need. And that requires the ability not to be simplistic, but to actually think about them. You know, try to put yourself, you know, in that position and, uh, and respond what is going to be best right there. Mm. I love that. And one of the things I read online about you personally, and you can feel free to fact check this, was that you were uh, one of the people which was notorious for, uh, for having difficult conversations when the time uh, called for it. So I wonder throughout your life, what have you found about mastering difficult conversations? Yeah. I, and I, I will fact check a little bit there because I don't think I'm that good at it. Um, but I do understand how important they are and I admire people who are, and I try to do it. But what I would say is the first thing about a difficult conversation is if it had, if it's an important conversation, if it has to be had, you're not going to do anybody any favors by not being realistic about it and not being somewhat direct. So, uh, letting them leave with any confusion about what the conversation just was is actually very ineffective because it, it gets worse if they find out later. I just got fired and he didn't say it. Um, so that's wrong. But I think you can start with the idea that it's not, um, hopefully, it's not a personal thing. It may be me telling you I'm very unhappy with how you're operating. But if you can say, all right, I'm very unhappy with how you're operating. I'm telling you because I care enough to try to help you operate better. I'm not going to pretend that I'm happy about what you're doing. I'm just telling you that the 
the source or the, the origin of this conversation is me trying to solve a problem. And if that problem is you, let, let's be direct about it. Um, I think people ultimately prefer that. Um, they may not in the moment, but usually they prefer it. And I also think that if you can avoid being personally um, disrespectful, you know, like somebody can do something that just makes me absolutely irritated and disgusted, etc. But I don't have to start it with saying that they are an evil person, you know, and, and that sort of thing. I can say that was bad. Now, if I think they're an evil person, I may tell them that, but, but that's pretty rare. Uh, and it's interesting because in my own life, I found that the relationships which I have, which are long last in a ones in which we've had difficulties, but our relationships have strengthened from the, uh, you know, from those issues which have arose. Isn't that such a paradox? You know, I, I think it's absolutely true. If you think about those times when you have stresses and strains, misunderstandings, etc. Um, sometimes if you just wait a little while, and this is what I've learned to do over time, you'll have something that creates friction and both of you know it. And if you just wait a little bit and let feelings kind of calm down, maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe, maybe a little longer, but then reach back out. And it doesn't always require, in my view, this big mea culpa that says you did wrong and, and let's make up or I did wrong and let's make up. Sometimes you just reach out and you don't even mention it. You just say, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while and I miss talking. That is an unspoken way of going, A, you know, I value the relationship. Maybe we both were, were wrong on this one. Let's, let's move forward. I think that, that becomes really important. I love that. I love that so much. Um, I want to touch on, because um, you make the point that context is so vital to leadership and that leadership isn't an algorithmic formula of if you do X, then you will get Y. Context is so dependent. And I'm from the UK and uh, I'm from Wales. I was just reading uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him, his autobiography. He was the manager of uh, Manchester United, and he's pretty much widely regarded as, um, you know, the greatest football manager of all time. And I was reading through the book, and he talked about how uh, that the mistake which he saw in a lot of managers was that they would treat all the players in the same way. But he was saying that he was known within the dressing room for, for having completely different relationships with every player. Uh, so I wonder just why is context so important for leadership? Yeah, if you, and I think he's absolutely right. I've, I've heard of him and just, you know, the, he's revered, of course. I think every person needs a different kind of leadership for several reasons. One, because they're typically at a different point in their life. If they're younger and they're, they're coming up or if they're at a a later point, they need a different. Second, they've earned a different relationship. I found in the military when I had people who had been around longer and we had shared experiences together, I would give them a different kind of regard because 
they, they had forged a special relationship with me that both of us valued. And so typically in my interaction with them, I would, I would often pull at that and say, hey, remember X or this is just like last time. And what you're doing is you're, you're, you're showing them what they've earned, the value of that that you respected. Uh, younger people, obviously, you can't do that, but you can uh, offer them, you know, the kinds of things that says, okay, let's do something together. Let's, let's build this organization. Let's do something that, because most people would like to develop those kinds of relationships. I also think that, you know, people's personal lives typically well enough to know that we, we all go through ups and downs in our families and, and all these kinds of things. And you can't uh, believe that when somebody's going through a really rough time that going and kicking them in the head is necessarily going to motivate them. That's, that's typically not the problem. If they're not performing because they're uh, lacking confidence or they're just distracted by other things, then, then kicking them doesn't do it. And even if it did it, it wouldn't be right. Nobody wants to be kicked at that point. And so I think leaders, and this is where it's hard for leaders who aren't well connected to their organizations, because if you don't know enough, it's impossible to interact with everybody that way. I always like to tell people, I like to have sort of a private joke with everybody in the organization that just they and I have, so I can refer to it, et cetera, because it's just a way to start conversations particularly if you got nothing else to say at that moment, you see them and hey, you know. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, one thing I'd love to know is, you know, you sort of mentioned the ups and downs that people go through. Right now we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, I wonder, what have you found in terms of leading people, particularly in difficult times and perhaps like how can we be leaders in our own daily lives right now and show up for our friends, our families, our colleagues? Yeah, I, th I think that's a wonderful thing for everybody to be thinking about right now. First, uh, crises are always special times and they are special opportunities for friendships, for leadership, because we will all remember our lives before and after COVID-19. We used to say 9-11 would be the biggest event of our lives. It was big for me in the military and all, but for the average person, it wasn't that big. We will measure before and after, and we will also measure how we were during this. And so we, we want to have lived up to our own expectations and desires for ourselves. Think about people who go back to big events to world war ii or something we talk about what our grandparents did if they didn't do anything we didn't talk about them. but but if they did something even if it was just their duty they don't have to be big uh heroes or performers but we take great pride in that now we take a an era in history where it's harder for people to stand up because their duty is everyone's duty is less clear um nowadays in a in COVID-19, you say, okay, what's your duty? Stay home. All right, that, that's kind of unfulfilling. It doesn't feel like I'm doing my duty. No medals for staying home. Then you have to expand it and say, well, well, what might be my duty? Maybe my duty is to other people. 
maybe my duty is not just to stay home and be responsible and wear a face mask and do those things. Maybe my duty is to see what other people may be having a tough time and I can help. Um, to the degree you do that, you forget your own distresses because you're busy at something else. And you're also able to, to derive a satisfaction that I'm doing something that matters. I can't do everything, but I can do something that matters. I think one of the failings in our societies now, both of our societies, is that we have stepped away from creating opportunities for people to do more and feel good about it. You know, I think national service should be bigger for young people so they can go be part of a medical organization for a year and help us through the pandemic or, or do things. But you've, but they've got to create meaningful opportunities to do that because there is, I believe, this pent-up desire to contribute, this pent-up desire to be part of the team. And we've got to, we've got to assume that not everybody wants to sit on the sideline, that they actually want to participate. I, I find it interesting though, because in my own life, I've noticed that um, I don't know why the human mind works in this way, but I found that whenever I do difficult things, although they feel often very uncomfortable in the moment, um, that later that day when I'm lying in bed, uh, I feel great. Like if I take a cold shower and I tell myself, so I'm in there, I'm going, Joe, you're a badass. <laughs> you know, <laughs> give myself a pat on the back for it. But before that, I don't want to get in there. So I wonder, what have you learned in terms of um, building the resilience to do what you say you're going to do? Yeah. Part of it is self-discipline. To go back to what you said earlier, you learn that when you take a cold shower, afterward you feel kind of self-righteous about it. You did a good thing. If you pick up trash along the road, you actually feel good about it. You go, I'm not a chump. I'm actually good, whether anybody saw me do it or not. Um, so there is a, a satisfaction of doing the right thing, what, even particularly if you're not being rewarded for it if you're not being paid or something. There's even more satisfaction in doing it as part of a group where there is um, shared privation or shared danger, or shared hardship, because not only do you do it, but you get reinforcement because your, your buddies know you did it. And so you look at each other and you all feel very self-satisfied because look what we did. It was very hard. It was very painful. But other people wouldn't do it, but we did. Um, and that's part of what is so powerful in the military. It's for fire services. You see it for police. You see it for any organization that does something hard, this bond, this shared hardship. And sometimes this idea that no one understands but us, which is okay, um, but, but it's a binding there. Then I think there's a, a self-discipline that comes with it. You start to understand that if you do certain things, you feel better about the day. You start to understand when you go bed at, to bed at night, if you got up early and you did physical exercise and you made your bed and you took care of somebody else, if you do a series of things, when you go to bed that night, you just feel better. And so you start to say, okay, that's something that 
that I appreciate that the opportunity to feel better, so you do it. Now, Marcus Aurelius would say, once you do something for you to feel better, you're starting to take the purity of the action away. But I'm not sure that's accurate. I, I think if you do things that are better uh, and live up to that, you know, good on you. Things which are usually the worst for us are often the things we want to do in the moment. So I suppose I'm going to have to ask you the question now of how do we build self-discipline? Yeah, I think it takes uh, action, meaning sometimes you have to be forced to do that which you do not want to do. And then it becomes a habit. Uh, I know with young people coming into the military, physical training, working out became very, very important. And most people who go through that over a period of time don't love it in the moment, but then it becomes a life habit. I joke with people, I fold my underwear in my drawers now. I have been for 50 years. And there's probably no earthly reason to do it except that I think I should do it. I make the bed as soon as I get out of it in the morning. I mean, I literally don't even walk, you know, unless my wife's still in it. And she hates it when I make it when she's in it. But um, once we're out of it, I make the bed because I think you should. Um, so I think putting yourself through that and then pretty soon you don't want to not do it because you know the difference between when you do it and when you don't, how you feel about yourself, the difference it makes. The problem is if someone never gets forced to do that in the first place, if they never develop those basic habits or experience of that, then I think that it's hard to develop those. Um, I think that the beauty of a school with a with some discipline or the military or a job, anything that forces you to do those things for a period of time has the potential of, of creating great self-discipline that is hard otherwise. Sports are good for it. Sports are good for it. I love that. I love that. Um, one thing I'd love to touch on, because I appreciate we're running out of time, is I'd love to touch on decision-making. So... On this show, we've talked a lot about um, decision-making. We've talked about mental models, reasoning from first principles, inversion, a number of these. Um, but I suppose that the, the consequences of me making a bad decision um, have seemed pretty nominal in comparison to some of the decisions in which you would have had to have made. Um, so I wonder what decision-making tools have you used that you found to be particularly useful, which you could share? Absolutely. Um, the first is the military has a process called the military decision-making process. And what it does is it's a multi-step where you first identify what you, the task or mission, and you make sure you understand that clearly. Then you gather facts about the problem, information on it, bearing on it. Then you go through the development of a series of ways to tackle that, courses of action, we call it. Then you compare those, you identify what would make one course of action better for another than another, criteria to, to weight them. Then you compare those courses of action to figure out which is the best, and you actually end up with a mathematical answer. And it looks neat and clean. You get the information, you go down, it's, it's mathematical, you get the answer and do it. Not so fast. Um, 
because you quickly learn that that process, while it has great value in dialing you in on what the mission is, on gathering information, on being clear what it is you're trying to do, if you change the criteria just a little bit, you get a completely different outcome. And so it's very easy to use that process and get completely the wrong answer. But if you use that process, and that's why commanders in the military, you follow that slavishly, and when they get a number, they go, okay, that's the right answer, let's go. That's very dangerous. But if you use that model to put rigor in your thinking, to force yourself before you really quickly make a decision, say, wait a minute, did I understand what it is I'm trying to do? Second, did I really get information about this? Do I know what's happening here? Have I thought about multiple ways to do it? If you use it to force your mind into a process, then when you get down, you use your judgment. You use your judgment and your intuition and your experience and you start to say, okay, my gut tells me this is the right answer and I'm confident that I have done due diligence, you might call it, to, to frame it for me so that I can get to it. Um, and you'll find in, we found in things like combat, those steps before can happen in your own mind with lightning speed. If the situation requires it, if you have a long time and you get your staff together, that's fine. You work them out. It's good to keep them busy, but you'll find when you develop that process, suddenly you can do it in, in your mind, uh, as quickly as need be. What books? have impacted your life? Yeah, I, I read a lot. And, um, you know, I read everything from books about sports leaders, coaches, and things like that, to how, because how they, they do with the problem. A lot of biographies, I remember, you know, I talk about Ulysses Grant's memoirs, a very humble leader with this extraordinary window into himself, uh, through the memoirs, uh, William Slim, Field Marshal Slim from World War II, that kind of thing. I don't read a lot of novels. There are a few that I like, but the reality is they tend to be kind of historical novels. So if it's science fiction or something, I, I have a tough time believing it could happen, therefore it doesn't seem relevant to me. Um, interesting, because I've written a couple business books. I don't read a lot of business books. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't admit that, but um, I like to to get how something happened. I like to get first-person descriptions of what happened in a case so I can understand the complexity. That That's what works for me. Mm-hmm. I love that. And my last question for you today before we tell these guys where they can find you, it would be, what makes a life worth living? Yeah. Um, It's certainly not rank. It's certainly not money. It's certainly not any of those things. I think it is the satisfaction that you did your best, that, that you contributed in a way that was not about you. It was about others. It was about maybe society writ large, but many of us don't have a chance to shape society. We have a chance to shape maybe our families, maybe one person. 
And if you, if you accept the idea that life ends at death and there's not an afterlife or, or heaven or anything like that, you could say, well, why would it matter? Why don't I just do whatever feels best in the moment? Because when it's over, it's over. But I'm not, I don't think that's the way we think. And I don't think that's the way we should think. Because if during your life, you are holding yourself to a standard, not just after death, if, if there's that moment of judgment, but during your life, you feel better about it. You feel like you're doing it for a reason, for a purpose, with a, with a set of rules. Um, everything else is imminently selfish. And I don't think we were raised to be selfish entirely. In fact, I think there's this terrific need inside human beings to not be selfish. And our society hasn't been pulling at that enough in the last 20, 30 years, um, as I think we, we shouldn't could. We probably feel better if we give a gift rather than receive it. So I completely agree with that. Where can these guys find you and where can they connect with you? Um, I am at McChrystal Group, which is one word, McChrystalGroup.com, but stan.mcchrystal at McChrystalGroup.com is the easiest way to find me. General McChrystal, this was such, such a pleasure. I have such enormous respect for you. And it was fantastic for myself personally to get to sit opposite you. And I really, truly hope that these guys got so much amazing value from this. Well, my thanks for your very thoughtful questions. Your great research before and and just the idea that we could share some serious things thank you well that wraps up what was a goddamn awesome episode with general mccrystal there were so many nuggets in there that i hope you got some value out of i know i personally did just as a reminder if you enjoyed this episode then we have even more value to offer you. We have a newsletter, which I know you will love. It is a no-spam newsletter. It is called Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. This goes out once per week on a Monday morning, and it's going to bring you even more of the stuff in which you love. Books, articles, behind-the-scenes stories, our upcoming interviews, who we'll be getting on the show. Uh, You can speak to us. You can interact with us on there. There's a link in the description. Do your thing. And on top of this, please hit the subscribe button, smash the five-star rating. And there's also the video interview of this up on our YouTube. If you would prefer to watch it that way, I will link to our YouTube below. Thank you, guys. And I will see you on Monday.